You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's incredibly easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on COVID Plus Test, check out our show notes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this week. Two weeks ago, I was at a state urban search and rescue conference down in uh, or basically north of Orlando, Florida. I met just amazing uh, men and women who are true heroes and I have a ton of courage, and they were at the, out there doing medical training for search and rescue, and they were in pancake buildings the entire time, and they were working on just like really intense situations. And I got to, I got to be there to observe and to do after actions and to see how that coordinates with, uh, you know, the bigger picture with uh, strategic uh, planning. And while I was out there, I met Walt Lewis, who is a district chief in Orlando for fire, and we had these amazing conversations talking about you know, the role of firefighters and the the future of firefighting and what's going on and what's some of his career experiences. And I was like, man, we have to have this guy on the show. And so he's actually with the, the Florida Task Force Floor, which is out of Central Florida. So he can talk about USAR there too. Well, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I was just talking about how I should call you Chief Lewis on the show, and I introduced you as Walt. So I <laughs> thanks yeah, for the informality. That's what my parents named me, so that's where I started out as. I'm very fine with that. That's awesome. So yeah, you're you're obviously a really cool guy because, like, when we were talking out there, and we I was I was seeing how these different parts of emergency services coordinate and work together, and this very like I was you know what was what did we talk about? This like hyper specific field of medical USAR and how to move into that from the firefighting side. It's just really incredible to think about. And, um, you know, just looking at the the use cases there, let's talk about uh, going back from your experiences. How did you get into firefighting? And then what drove you towards the USAR perspective? Okay. Uh, I'll try to keep it short. So anybody that knows me, I have like a 
44. My, my, my wife always jokes that I have a, like 44,000 minimum word per day. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to keep it in under an hour. That's good for podcasting, uh, by the way. Yeah. Okay, all right. I'll keep it in mind. We may have to do a part two after this. <laughs> all right. Okay. So uh, I was fortunate uh, to be exposed to it early on in life. My, both my older brothers and my father were, were volunteers in a small town in Maywood, New Jersey. And each of them were very active in the volunteer firehouse. Being nine years behind my older brother, I, uh, as a youngster, was seeing the fire trucks and the enthusiasm. And as time grew on, my father retired, moved to Florida, and I got to be an explorer in my hometown of Palm Bay. With that, the exposures were there. And early on, with Palm Bay Fire Department, when I got on there, we responded down to assist in what we thought we were assisting with Hurricane Andrew. And that was my first exposure to USAR. Mm. Here's this major natural disaster. I was dating a girl down in Miami at the time, so I knew a little bit of the area. And uh, to go down there, our people that coordinated it didn't want to, they, they, they took it for what it should be as far as a disaster. And they brought their own camper, food supplies, and they mm. laid the groundwork for our group to be able to operate because so many people flooded Florida. Hey, we're here to help. Where do we stay? Where do we eat? And we have certainly realized what that impact is. So fortunately, our agency did the right thing. Uh, Jim Stables, fire chief now in Boynton Beach. He's uh, back down to Florida. He helped coordinate a good part of that effort and uh, showed us how we could do this in a good way. So in small teams, we went down to operate, operate out of Firehouse 29 in Sweetwater and uh, provided some aid to Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. I thought it was kind of neat. Uh, the USAR system was coming online. FEMA was coming about from CD, Civil Defense, and my brothers were involved in Civil Defense. That's what funded the fire department, part of it in Maywood. So mm. just in retrospect, it's kind of neat how it connected. Yeah. And then fast forwarding, getting on with Orlando Fire Department after a couple of years with Palm Bay, the 9-11 disaster, the 9-11 tragedy highlighted the need for regional and local teams to be able to be self-supportive at least for the outset of the emergency, unknown if there would be just an isolated event. Prior to then, it was really thought of disasters being pretty much localized or sole in their mm. aspect. But here, 9-11 really pointed out that you would have major disasters in so many locations. Outside of the hurricane or the earthquakes in California, where you had large areas heavily devastated, here you've got the Pentagon impacted, the trade centers impacted, and had uh, Flight 93 made its impact where its destination was another site, perhaps. So right. that highlighted the USAR system. And then uh, we were fortunate with Orlando, City of Orlando, Orange County government, Seminole County government, aligned to create under the umbrella of the state of Florida to create one of the regional task forces. And uh, with that, Florida 4 was born. Mm. Uh, originally, 12 teams were supposed to be created. There weren't enough areas to support it. Florida's one and two, which are already in the system as FEMA teams, uh, were also pulled on the umbrellas of Florida assets. So they're a dual role team and they're a great set of assets. It's great having older teams with more experience and uh, seasoned veterans there to kind of give us some guidance on things. And uh, they've been some great heroes in my career to help me with get answers. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have one of them that's retired from mine, Dave, Dave Downey, uh, living in the Orlando area. So I get to talk to him every once in a while and get some really good insight on stuff. And I have a great pleasure of working with him because years ago he was a guy, and I still do, look up to and want to follow as far as his leadership and uh, great decision making. So I, I try to follow what he's laid before because he's done, you know, a lot of people have done that great job and I want to continue that tradition. Mm. So that puts me in the position of uh, joining Florida 4 in 2003. The team stepped on board in 04. Hurricane Charlie hit the map, crossed Florida, and then three other, two other storms followed suit, Francis and Jean, and each of those crossed the Orlando area. 
once we were able to step up our team and get out the door, we started to become active. Light rescue, a lot of searching and verifying was done and uh, being able to com uh, support the community and humanitarian needs was started. So our team got a couple of deployments out to Wilmo, Katrina, Ivan, and uh, with all those deployments, we got quite a bit of seasoning. And then we had a drought, which was kind of good for the nation, kind of good for yeah. a lot of areas that we didn't go out the door for another 12 years. Mm. So it was a challenge staying on the team, staying motivated. I saw people do a whole decades of service on the team and never deployed. So that part's a challenge in keeping people motivated. Now, as I've advanced and had the pleasure, I have the honor of now serving as one of the task force leaders, I, I get to be that cheerleader still and keep people engaged in the team. And it, and it is easier when you dress up for the rehearsals a lot and then there's a performance. So if you're a bridesmaid a bunch of times and you don't get married, it gets a little disappointing. <laughs> so, yeah. so for us, we're fortunate that we get that opportunity, but we, uh, we, we never like to see the tragedy. We just always uh, are happy to be able to assist like any, any team out there. Okay, so you hit on like twelve different topics that I want to uh, t talk about. So that's that's awesome. That's I'm glad that you're the the forty four thousand uh, minimum because I'm I'm the same way. So let's let's go down this uh, list a little bit because I was literally writing this down as uh, you were talking. You mentioned uh, Andrew, which is a game changer. You mentioned nine eleven. You mentioned Katrina. You mentioned all these different events uh, that have really changed both the USAR perspective and uh, the emergency management perspective. If you really think about it, like for our listeners, <clears throat> I keep saying that everything before 9-11, whatever emergency management was then is not what it is now. And it should not, after this pandemic, I hope uh, more people wake up to like what it can do in terms of coordination. And we hit that next phase. And we could talk about that later. But you're talking about some some major events that are happening and you're involved in those in one way or the other. And so that's awesome just to have that perspective on the show. <clears throat> and then you kind of switched over and you're talking about leadership, which is a very big thing that we talk about here. And um, I thought it was interesting how you're talking about keeping people motivated. Um, it's kind of, we're kind of in a weird field because we never want disasters to impact people, but we're in the field for a reason. We, we want to work. We want to get out there. We want to to be able to prove our skills. And whether you're, I don't know, an emergency planner, you're a firefighter, you're you know humanitarian aid doing a nonprofit. You want to be able to do your job and and to help people essentially. Um, when you don't, actually, I'm going to back up for a second. When so a week or two ago, we had Joe Delamuro on here from FEMA, and he talked about, um. How do you say? It? He's like, hey, you have to go to your town and say, hey, I need uh, money to stop bombs from happening. You hope that a bomb will never go off in your city. But how do you right. get funding to make sure that bombs never go off in your city? And so, like, you're 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 always fighting the the, the money man there. And on the same side, how do you you talked about keeping people motivated? Not deploying for twelve years is a is a pretty tough run. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I would sit in house at FEMA sometimes for like eight months, and I'd be like, you know, I started like to twitch. You know, I'm like, oh, get me out the door. There's <laughs> things happening. I want to be there. So, how do you do that? How do you keep people motivated? What what tasks do you focus on? Um, how do you how do you keep that level of energy up? So, if you do deploy, you know, you're 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 prime and ready to go. 
Well, it, it's not easy. That's for sure. You're going to have members that are only there for the T-shirt. You're going to have members that uh, are the adrenaline junkies. And to touch on that point there, you know, uh, I was uh, called that like it was a bad thing many, many years ago. And uh, I put some thought to it as far as why, you know, touching on your point. It's not that we're adrenaline junkies where we want to see devastation. We have prepared for a major event and we enjoy the mental and physical challenge to be able to encounter that and do it with success so that we can succeed for the people we have signed up to serve. And I think that's a better answer other than saying that, uh, yeah, we just hope nothing ever bad happens. Mm. But to fight the dollar certain circumstance, yeah, that's a challenge and try and keep people motivated. Big thing is training. There's always the events. There's, we don't know what mother nature is going to throw at us next year, but there's always a man-made problem that can come about. There's been enough tragedies here as of late that uh, identify that we need to be on our guard. And as a USAR team, we need to be prepared for whatever is under our umbrella and capable. But ultimately, it could be anything. It could be wide area search. Mm. Uh, we started developing our team for that when several children, uh, a couple high-profile cases of the area, went missing, and we could have been tasked as a utilized resource. We have the rank structure. We have the radios. We have the personnel, the equipment, the people, uh, the uh, vehicles, uh, the GPS units. It was just a matter of being another extension, and sometimes we just weren't thought of or we weren't mm. employed or uh, what's going to cover the insurance. So it wasn't planning on the front side to enable that so we could work on that. But before they asked us to go, let's make sure we, we can answer that call. So we did training in that arena and got mm. a lot of people. And we had some experts in the field that were less uh, involved members, but when they're engaged and tasked with the project, they become more engaged and more avail uh, interested in being in in involved. The biggest thing, if anything, it's consistency. If you don't have consistent training every month, every three months, people start to forget about it and then they dissociate and they do it. They, they, they put their time to something else. And it's always going to be cyclical. People mm -hmm. have kids, they get older, they retire. Uh, again, people that want the t-shirts, they don't have the enthusiasm to begin with. So you got to keep at least the majority engaged. You're not going to get everybody, but understand your audience. And what is their motivation? I mean, that's that's a leadership principle of plaguing every service. But you've got your veterans, you've got your boomers, you've got your Gen Xers, millennials, everybody in between. What drives them? What's their motivation? What do they want to achieve? And how can you make your drill? Can you make your training, your team fulfill what they want? Mm -hmm. And just using what Forbes lists, you know, why do people leave jobs? It's not money as the top answer. It's fulfillment. Right. So if we can fulfill some of our members, even if it's a short amount, even if it's an hour of training, two hours, hey, coming out of the firehouse from 9 to 11, we're going to be doing some training, come by the warehouse, and if nothing else, stay engaged, see the see the people again so that you learn a couple new members, you remember the old members, people see your face, so that when the deployment happens, you know the people and you're able to move quicker. Because especially in our agency, we have three main agencies. I, I named Orlando, Orange County Fire Rescue, and Seminole County Fire Rescue. But we're supported by other agencies in Region 5, Kissimmee Fire Department, Winter Park Fire Department, Osceola County Fire Rescue, uh, Martin County. So we've got uh, Claremont Fire Rescue. We've got numerous agencies in our region that also provide some personnel. And a big one, Lake County Fire Rescue. Mm. Their fire chief is a former Seminole County fire chief or chief officer. And uh, so we got a lot of people that are going to integrate, just like in a FEMA building. They're going to be coming from different places. When you have that association to those people, it's going to work smoother. Okay. Again, you mentioned about 12 different things I want to talk about. So, okay. Right. The, the I'm going to go. I'm going to have all these tangents. I love it, I dude. I love it. You just, you just gave us right. like 
you know, you're already giving us like a lot of clips we can use. So, okay. Okay. First of all, the t-shirt one I find is hilarious because, um, so the national strike team, uh, is there only for response. And so if there's not a response, we're really not doing our job. We work on policy. We worked on training. We did a ton of training. We'll talk about that in a second. But when I would get it deployed to the Hurricane Harvey, the Hurricane Matthew, the wildfires, the the tornadoes, whatever disaster we got deployed to, and 90% of it was natural, um, I one of my metrics for demobilization was when staff that we'd bring in, because we'd have, you know, I had 200 staff and we had, what, 25,000 people deployed. Um, when my st- staff started asking me about t-shirts, I knew that it was time to go home or not in a response <laughs> anymore, right? Like you're doing 18 hour days. You're trying to coordinate all these resources. I specifically was trying to figure out where the USAR team should go. I was working directly with the emergency services uh, branch director and we were doing all these different things. And so the USAR teams would go out and we were tracking all this stuff and trying to help out. And then one day people start asking for t-shirts and you're like, okay, that's not that anymore. So that's, that's really funny. I will say on the other side of the coin, if you do want an awesome t-shirt, you have to get the disaster tough t-shirt <laughs> uh, from a website. Okay. That's really dumb. Um, go to the website. They got cool stuff. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Good man. Um, the other thing that you're talking about is the mental challenge. I really like phrasing it like that. That's a good idea. Um, the, the conference that we were at talk about a great mental challenge. I, I like to, I like to call strategic level emergency management. And to be fair, when I was talking to most of the the firefighters out there, people trying to get on the USAR teams, they had no idea what emergency management was. And we'll talk about that in a second, but I love I liked the idea of a chess match. I like to say, okay, there's a category five hurricane coming in. How am I going to reduce the level of impact, you know, to the to the max? And what do I need to do to do that? And that mental challenge of figuring out who, what, when, where, how bad and reduce that impact is a great mental challenge. And so I like that a lot. Um, and then what you're talking about, this last point, and we're gonna talk about this one quite a bit. Um, where you can fill us in here is consistency. I was very lucky to work on under somebody similar to you, Rodney Melsick, who when we didn't get deployed, man, we kept that culture up of deployments. We did trainings all the time. We did what we call lightning bolt exercises, which is basically like you're in go mode, you get the call and you're, you're, you're going through all the motions. We did a lot of training and we just refined and refined and refined. And so when we went out, there wasn't any rust, right? And, uh, luckily I was on a team that we didn't have a lot of t-shirt people. They, you know, they brought, brought in the best people. Um, but consistency is really key. How do you integrate to the consistency of training with, I, I'm going to go back to this money thing again, because it, a lot of times for us, it does come back to money. How do you give people the training that they need if they're not getting deployed? And so like those dollars could be not there. What type of exercises would you suggest? There's, there's a ton of stuff. It's just got to put the time to thinking about it. And you don't try and do it alone. Talk to some of the other task forces, TRTs, uh, and other people that are in your field and see what they've done for success, or at least brainstorm, for the lack of the old term. But uh, get everybody together. What worked out well for us, and during most of that 12 years, I was the I was a tech search. I grew up on the team as a tech search specialist. Mm. And then to me, that's one of the most important uh, roles in the sense that you can't find victims there's nothing to do. 
Yeah. So with tech search, we needed to stay good with our skills, with our GPS use. Uh, everybody's going to look to us to make sure we know where we're going and how it's going to work. So let's stay focused on what our demands are. And to work with a small group, I approached our team management and said, hey, doing the rope training is great, doing the confined space training is great, all, all it's good, but we're not staying uh, highly proficient on our skills. Mm. And what's important is frequency, recency, and accuracy equals proficiency, right? Oh, I like that. So by having those three things, if we're not frequently training on it or doing it accurately or not doing it recently, we're not going to be good at it. So ask the team management, would you mind if we broke away and did our own group training for canine search specialists and tech search specialists? Mm. And it's open and available to anybody else that wishes to attend and we'll need those extra help. So we started working with our canines and I got to see firsthand some of our dog operators and they are fantastic. They are fantastic. Love those as resources. And I, I had true, full, uh, true faith in our canines when they would go out and search. If Marsha's dog hit, I knew there was a victim there. It wasn't I needed another dog to come check because in seeing their dog operate all the time, I had confidence. Same thing with Susan Wesley's and Jen Brown's. And uh, just I knew that the dogs were doing their job and I could have confidence that we could start doing the rescue work rather than delaying it any longer. If I was in the pile and a dog barked at me, I would really like you to start coming to help me wait, <laughs> rather than waiting for another dog to come bark at me. Yeah. <laughs> but but I understand the reasoning, so yeah. I, I can appreciate that too. But the fulfillment part of it, doing those training skills, look at where you may be deficient. What do you truly need to focus on? But also, what can you do at, at the cheap? There are other agencies that need to do training as well and have a small training budget, but can't fulfill what they want for their training because they don't have enough people or resources. Fish and Wildlife Commission. Mm. Hey, Fish and Wildlife Commission, what do you guys got going on in the next year? Well, we got a couple of flight trainings we got to do and we got some ground search. You mind if we integrate? That would be great. So with them, we got to do airframe training, find out what equipment we can carry, how far we can go, how long the airship can go how to do loading procedures. They teach us, we teach them everything on the front side. So when we go out and we have to meet, we, we already know these people and we know what exactly we're going to do. Mm. And it was their training budget we used. We just supplied the people to drive down to Lakeland Airport. That's awesome. Oh, we're going, and we're going to Lakeland Airport to do the training. Lakeland Fire hosts a technical rescue team. So I call Matt Brown. Hey, Matt Brown, we're going to be in your backyard. Would you like to get some training in? Free training for him. It happens to be in his backyard. So three different layers of training involved, all on the cheap. Right. Search and rescue training. Uh, you can do search and wide area search training. Uh, it's not much to take out maps, but you could do search training in your own backyard. That's easy. Everybody knows the major uh, geographical regions. But pull out a map of the Apalachicola National Forest and, and give it to our search managers, and now they got to try and work on an exercise. We're deployed to here lay out where you're going to do and where your boundaries and what you expect your genuine travel time for your people and doing their wilderness search. How do you set up your drills? What are your support mechanisms? And have them truly walk through everything and have it come out with, and then have the, the experts stay silent. And then at the end, let them follow back in with, all right, think about these other couple things rather than inject every little thing. So this way they learn, not necessarily the hard way, but they truly get all their thought out of their head and then get the introduction of the extra points. And it's as much as you want to try and do. Really, what's going to be your primary, your prior priority responses and work your way down? Just because it's possible doesn't mean it's probable. But mm. go with the probable and handle the possible as well. The disaster medicine. Uh, for a while, we had some pretty motivated medical specs. Um, we, we were getting that cadre back again. We would integrate them with a couple exercises. And not only did we find the victim with the dog, search them with a camera, hurt them with a Delsar, 
but then we had a med spec come out. We would remove the victim to some degree, and then the med spec had to medically manage the patient in the pot. Uh, future training, we hope to set up, and hopefully with the development of our future training center, we can create that training environment that will integrate every aspect of our USAR components. And that's something I see. Here's another another segue for you, is some of our training facilities, they do really good for a couple points of USAR, but not all of them. They might be good for structural collapse or for shoring or search, but not really good for the medically needed management patient, like the, the MSOC training that you went to. Joe does a fantastic job with a group of disaster medical solutions of setting things up to make it as realistic as possible. Yes. And that should be the run or the sprint level. And sometimes we do have to do that crawl level with our personnel so that we can get to there. But there's always some crawl stuff we can do. We can always do GPS training. That's great. We can do map training. That's free. We can mm. do winch and off-road vehicle uh, operations. That might be a cost incurred because you might break something. But there's a lot of little things that you can do. And again, it looks, look at your priorities. Okay. Wow. Again. So this is, this is, uh, this is really interesting. You're, you are, you talk like a firefighter, but you are using emergency management principles and pretty much everything you're doing so far. You've talked about three of maybe 10 things that we hit on. You talked about the issues of planning specifically planning before a deployment. And so that's, that can create a hiccup. That's a big time emergency management thing of like coordination and planning. So the, the, I already used the word coordination, coordinating between different teams is what emergency management really does. I, I keep on saying I have, I run a company called Doberman emergency management. And yet I think emergency management is a mis misnomer. And so that's kind of my problem, but emergency coordination is really what we're supposed to be doing. Great emergency managers, great first responders coordinate with all the different groups in, in the house. And quite frankly, when you're out there doing your job, you shouldn't be coordinating at that point. There should be somebody behind the scenes assisting you to, rec to helping to coordinate those resources. And the last thing you talked about was training. Joe Hernandez and the Disaster Medical Solutions. I do not do endorsements on the show uh, very much. But I will say this, I 100% endorse Joe Hernandez and the Disaster Medical Solutions. That was probably the, the, the best training, skills-based training I've ever seen. I have been to a, a million trainings. In fact, I've put on a lot of different trainings, and hopefully those went pretty smooth as well. However, uh, this was like top tier for sure. Um, fully integration. By the way, he kept on saying crawl, and that's kind of a huge pun for USAR. I don't know if you, you caught that, but... Um, you know, I've never been in a pancake building so much in my life, uh, than last week. And as an emergency manager, I kept on every day I would get these notes and I'm like, man, there needs to be so much more coordination between our side of the house and the USAR side of the house. But in terms of that training piece, like every day was flawless, right? Yeah. You, ha you had the skill-based training in the morning or the, the discussions in the morning and then the afternoon. Um, an evening, you'd, they would actually go out there and do it. And when I say do it for those listeners, they had cadaver and they were actually performing, you know, amputations and tracheotomies. And um, I learned about ketamine, uh, like everything in the, in the pancake buildings was about 300 ml of ketamine and then t another 200. And I was like, okay, I basically can do USAR now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like 
let's talk about that USAR training specifically because you're out there as an instructor yourself. Um, there was a lot of instructors. It's almost one for one. Well, it was like 20, 20 instructors that I counted with 36 uh, students. A lot of different skills going on. What do you think sets apart that training? And in your perspective, am I missing something? Is that just kind of the standard or does that training really stand out for you as well? No, and, and I'm not going to denounce any other training agency or, or groups that are out there. There's for a lot sure. of great ones for out sure. there, for sure. But, but uh, Joe has dedicated from the early days, and, it, and this originated underneath John Holgerson and Rescue Training Associates many years ago, where we provided the disaster medical specialist class. And eventually when that company folded, Joe kept this going mm. and created disaster medical solutions. And he has the eye to and super nice guy. I know. Um, I mean, just, just salt of the earth, uh, super humil, you know, great humility, but he has the, the ability to just great, create great connections and friendships with people. And there, there's so many high level people. And, uh, I really don't even count myself as an instructor in the group because there's so many smart people in the group that I, I have the pleasure of going just to be able to hang out with them and, and absorb <laughs> and learn and have fun with them. Um, I bring a very small piece to the pie and they, they have them pretty much the whole part. You're full of it, by the way, because uh, you literally the last 20, 30 minutes just proved why, why, why you are one of those smart guys. So that's BS. Well, Anyways, you. but yeah. I, I, so I took notes from that conference and I, <laughs> I kept it available for here. So. Okay, smart. But, no. <laughs> but they, their focused goal, you know, Vinnie Johnson, Juan Enriquez, the guys that are helping run the thing, their focused goal is to make it as realistic as possible so that when you are forced with that event, you know the decisions you're going to make, how are you going to respond, what needs to be done. There's no question because most of the time those medical specialists, they may be completely on their own without the, the, the conference of a doctor nearby because you're in the disaster environment. You may be in Haiti where the doctor is one and there's four med specs and each of those with patients and you've got to make the decision what is being done for this patient right now. IV therapy, bicarb on board and uh, EKG tracing if I've got the machine available. If not, then I've got to make my other decisions based on symptomology. Having that depth of knowledge is way beyond where just paramedics look, you know, continue to learn from. And also want to break the mold of standard, not against ACLS or any other teaching platform, but when the situations are presented, you have pretty much a basic mannequin. You might have a sim man, which is very interactive, but to go the further level of, of the mannequins over there and the trauma effects and Forgive me for not having an accurate name of the company, but Drama FX has moved on to another company name. And to have the realism that's there with that high-level, multiple-patient scenario that is true to life, it immerses you in the true scenario. So when the students would come in, they would, we had to break the mold. You know, day one, we gave them a little forgiveness. Two, we started hitting them. Day three, you, I had plenty of dumb looks, and I would give them lots of dumb looks when they would ask me a question about a patient that they should be able to find out themselves. Mm. but they wouldn't get it because they didn't take their gloves off, their work gloves to expose their patient care glove to touch the patient. I'm not going to tell you anything. This is not a, a, a mega code. This is a real life scenario. Do everything that you can. The patient will talk back to you. The noises, the smells, the sounds, everything's coming about to make it as realistic as possible. So it is all information based decision-making, not just me telling you something. It is all your sensory input. So it's sensory input decision-making rather than information. And for those scenarios, the last day, the goal is to have live interaction. The location couldn't be much better. It's Florida State Fire College. It's got a great pile. 
but also it's when fire standard students are there and lots of them are very energetic and interested in participating and learning. Yeah. So they are right there and they make great role models or uh, great uh, model actors. So they get moulaged up and supported features. And and you've mentioned about this, the student to structure, the student to instructor ratio. If we engaged in a football game, we'd probably give them a run for their money. Absolutely. Students versus instructors because yeah. it was, I think it was one to three mm. uh, as far as in orange shirts. But it was very close to being one to one or one to two in a lot of scenarios. And we want that. We want that immediate full attention as much to the student as possible so that they have full confidence when they go back to their local jurisdiction and they can be the authority so that their fire chief, their emergency manager, their EMS director have full confidence that these are highly trained, well-oriented individuals that are fully capable of providing whatever care is needed when that disaster happens. The downside is going to be sustainment of that training. So we invite those students to come back. And when we have other exercises in those regions, we try to reach out and stand visible. So certainly go to, the, to their website to know when those events are coming so you can come back up and revisit just so that the availability is there. And that's something that we don't do a very good job of. We typically take a class, but we don't do a lot for sustainment later on on our own. We expect mm. our agency to follow through. So we allow that to happen too. And that's that's a great vision of Joe and, and the personnel that work there. And uh, I love being around them. I mean, we, we chide each other. We have a great time. But it, I know that at any moment, if I needed help, I could call any of those 20 people and they'd probably be at my house tomorrow, if not tonight, mm-hmm. to help me with whatever I needed. So they're, they're a fantastic group of people, uh, very intelligent, very humil- uh, humble, and uh, just experts in their field. And I'm privileged to be around them. Yeah, in fact, I was privileged. Uh, I felt the same way. I felt like it was uh, an awesome learning experience. Um, I like what you said earlier when you said, uh, you know, you don't want to knock any other group. And and to that credit, I'm kind of one of those people who say something like, I'm the best. Other people are the best too, but I don't want anybody to be any better. Like, I'm that's how hard I want to push. I hope everybody gets to that level. And so I, I think of things like tiers. In terms of training, uh, that, that USAR training is top tier in terms of like it was, it was close to flawless as I've seen it in terms of uh, the the purpose, the mission, and the outcome. When I was uh, observing the students, and again, I'm not a medical guy, but I have had some training in, uh, you know, just working with people and understanding communication and understanding emergency services and understanding that tempo and understanding all these different things that have to happen, that coordination piece even just tracking what you're doing. Um, like from a triage perspective, I understand triage because we deal with triage a lot in large scale disasters, right? And um, so I was watching them and like day one, man, I was like, uh-oh, like this is bad. Like they were making so many mistakes. And day two, even day three, there was one moment where I was really, really imp- impressed with uh, the two instructors. Uh, basically, by their lack of attention uh, in this one area, um, the 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 person that they should have been treating died, or they would have died because they didn't treat it fast enough, and they weren't really well coordinated. And you could tell the instructors were really frustrated by that because you know you want them to do life saving work, but when they came back together and they did their hot wash at the end, it was it was no emotion. It was pure teaching moment and still building up their confidence. Let's focus on what you did right. Here's a couple things that you need to tweak. But you really know. You're the professional. You already came here. You're already a paramedic. 
you know what to do. So make sure you're doing those things and allowing that. I think what happens a lot of times with instructors is like if people don't like aren't doing it right, they'll go real world, real world. They'll try to stop everything. I'm like, well, you know, you need to fix this, or they'll give little hints. There wasn't really a lot of that. There was okay, we're gonna teach you the skill. You go do it, and then we'll do a hot wash. By the by, the last day, which was my favorite probably exercise I've ever been a part of, because we don't really do with night a lot. Uh, we had um, another guy on here, uh, Dr. Stephen Johnson, who is. Uh, biochem counterterrorism expert for uh, UK. And he goes, we don't really do a lot of night exercises because it's just so much more work. And I was really happy to see the night exercise. And then watching the students, we actually had, um, her name was Tammy, mic'd up. And uh, so I was outside the hole. In fact, I was inside the hole a little bit, but I was mostly outside the hole, but we could hear her inside. And the level of progression that happened from day one, I'm not talking about her specifically, I'm just talking about students in general, to the last day was just incredible to watch. And that's my favorite thing as an instructor, really, is to like say, like, okay, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed morons, usually what happens in the beginning. But if people take it seriously, and that's kind of on the, our side to help them take it seriously, but if they, people take it seriously by the end, where are they at? And I was very, very impressed of where they were at. And so that's why I was just kind of blown away by um, by what the purpose and mission and the outcomes were of that training exercise. So uh, hats off to all the instructors, yourself included, and Joe for coordinating that piece. Yeah, the, uh, other, the other group to touch on is also the students. We get a lot of high-level high performers, and Tammy, the one you mentioned, she was one too. So coming into the program, they're the people that really take it serious, really do the extra study and do they're the good paramedics you know in the organization yeah and then they, they become even better or more better exposed so you know hats off to them too yeah it's interesting to watch like um okay like i'm not a huge kobe bryant fan in terms of basketball or whatever but i did like what he 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 was talking about high school students and they'll they will go and work out and do basketball skills and training an hour and a half Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or they'll do like an hour every day. And uh, then he was like, okay, compare that to a kid who does three hours every day. And just like, what happens after the year? And he goes, it's simple math. Like somebody takes it seriously versus somebody doesn't take it seriously and does like 100% their effort, whatever their level of effort is, sorry, whatever their, their, um, their capability is in the beginning, it doesn't really matter. So like if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, I'm like really bad at X, Y, and Z and somebody else is naturally just amazing, it doesn't matter. If your level of effort is always to the max and theirs is not, you will eventually be better. And uh, you definitely saw that with a lot of the students. Another student that really impressed me actually from a coordination and communication standpoint was a, a student named Cody. Uh, there was one exercise where they were... I was watching this thing again. I'm in the actual hole. They're not relaying information very well. There's five different parties talking on the outside of what they should be doing on the inside. The inside is trying to relay information. So neither party is communicating. And Cody just goes, everybody shut up. I, mm -hmm. He was like the instant commander for, or whatever. For, he's like, everybody just got really quiet. He goes, what do we need? And he says that into the hole. They, they relay it back. And he says, okay, let's get them X, Y, and Z right now. And I was like, that's that's the word. And a little bit later, he was like, is there like a, is there, a, <laughs> this is a really funny moment for me, actually. He was like, is there a um, a code word for trying to get everybody quiet? I was like, you just used it. 
He's like, what? I'm like, shut up is the code word. Like that, <laughs> yeah. that, that is the way to get everybody to be quiet. And sometimes that has to happen. Now, the problem with that is once we told him that, or once I relayed that information, the whole group kind of got excited with using shut up. They're like, use it a little bit, maybe too much. But it right. it shows that like uh, communication is a big piece. And I thought that was another uh, great thing about this, the challenge, because you're treating them as if they should be able to do it and you expect them to do it. And I think that's part of the reason why they were trying very hard. It's like they wanted to live up to that expectation, right? Yeah. And going into those drills, typically he's not going to be the whole leader, the whole search manager, the whole what we're trying to get out of that without telling them is that we're trying to develop you to be the authoritarian yes. in your respective role. So that you making that decision, you'll have that confidence that this is what we need to do. This is how we need to approach it. You need to listen to me rather than being the diminutive. I'll do whatever you tell me, but I really think we should do this. Mm. We want them to engage their capabilities so that they feel confident and can make those decisions and get that message across. Maybe not by telling their chief team manager to shut up, but <laughs> in a more appropriate manager. But in their peer level, they totally understand. Oh yeah, in the peer level, it's okay. Yeah, you don't tell your boss to shut up. That's a that's a big no no. But um, it, you know, there's a there's a there's a time and place, and he used it appropriately. I thought, and um, they he started. Got, he got control of the problem mm -hmm. and got it on track, and that's one of the other skills that we're teaching without teaching. Yeah, I will say though, later in the week when. Um, we had um, some uh, explosions go off. Before that, he was talking about like, well, um, you know, with my group, we don't, we we have explosions and a little more real. And then the first explosion went off, and I caught him on camera. I got you, Cody. He he flinched. I was like, ah, I knew it. So it was kind of funny um, that to catch him on that. But uh, yeah, I think that's. I think we just highlighted some really good points about training in general. I do that all the time in emergency management. I, I train people on active shooter um, because I did more of the operation stuff in, in DC. And so uh, we talk about active shooter and we do skill-based training with that of trying to get, get people away. It's like much more complex than run, hide, fight. We talk about, um, we try to make the scenario as real as possible. One benefit that I have that I don't think is utilized enough is this geospatial background that I have, map making and visualizations. I think one of the reasons why the USAR training is so effective is because you guys were out there actually in the pile. Tabletops exercises can be great and they should be utilized, you know, pretty frequently. But you know, when you're able to pull in maps and injects and people are able to do visualizations and start to make it as real as possible then you start getting away from having to tell people don't fight the exercise. When people are, are fighting the exercise, it means, to be honest, it means the exercise wasn't developed very well in my perspective. And so like, it's a call to emergency managers, trainers, you know, instructors, whatever, to say like, this is exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it as real as possible as we can and um, you know, go forth and succeed, right? And so, um, again, just hitting on all pistons. I'm giving, giving a lot of praise because I was, I was obviously really impressed. However, I will say, and maybe you can shed some light into this. I felt like pretty much everybody I talked to, um, out there had no idea what emergency managers do. Like most of the time I got was like, Oh, you deliver the water, right? No, that's a loggy, right? <laughs> oh, uh, you can get us food, right? No, that's someone in a VOAD. Like I don't do that at all. Um, and so I think it's, there's this disconnect. We're all in, 
I've been trying to find a word for it lately. Um, emergency management and emergency services should be hand in hand. I really feel like that way. And I, I, it's not. It's part of the reason why there's so many uh, disconnects in communication. Um, that was a big thing in 9-11 we, um, that you brought up. Uh, you brought up 9-11. Police and fire not literally don't even have the capability to talk to each other. Well, there's a, an after action. Uh, the police helicopter watched the second plane hit. He had no capability. He didn't even consider communicating to the firefighters in the other building. Hey, get out now. There's a second plane that just hit. And um, that's still a problem in New York City. There's this whole culture thing, BS. I, I don't care about people's culture. You're going to care a lot because you're a firefighter, but I don't care. Right? In a large scale disaster, it's about life saving. Um, but that being said, why do you think, um, or let's, let's actually, let's just be super honest. What do you think the, the opinion of uh, emergency management is from the standard firefighter perspective? What do you think? that they think an emergency manager is? And are, do you think that they are effective? Do you think the firefighters believe that they're even needed? Uh, I mean, I hate to put words in anybody's mouth, so I'll speak from our perspective. Uh, Fair enough. Fire <laughs> yeah. um, as far as uh, most of it's just education. It, it's an understanding piece. Uh, we're very blessed. We've got a very good emergency management organization. We've got Manny Soto and April Taylor, and they do a fantastic job. Through this last year, we had full exposure as to what their involvement is by daily situation reports being published by them. Mm. Uh, I was a planning section chief. I uh, tutored from April quite a few times, ran into her for some guidance on things quite a few times, always had the answer. That's awesome. And by having high-level performers like that, you get spoiled. So <laughs> you don't necessarily have to know what they do. They just work magic. That's uh, awesome. But for what... Um, what does an emergency manager do if, if the person at the end of the nozzle or on the fire truck doesn't understand what they do? That can be okay. They have to have faith that there are people above them that understand what the emergency managers do. And it has to be an integrated process. I like that. I think that's where maybe the best disconnect occurs in many agencies. We just started again because of training challenges and time on the calendar and the availability with COVID access and so forth. We're getting our officers to go back to the emergency operations center to spend some time with our communications personnel to see what challenges they run into. And through that exposure that's attached to and under the same roof of our EOC, we do quite a bit of training at our EOC. We have nothing else. We host the class there. So our people get to sit in their environment, see the desks, how it's laid out. There's Manny. I can ask him some questions. And then uh, a good number of our people, probably a dozen or better, are involved in some sort of project that integrates with them. So that helps. So the association, they're not just not a mysterious person behind the door that uh, only shows up when a hurricane shows up. And then we have to ask them questions. They can't answer us anyway because I don't understand what they do. And what do you need me to do? It, yeah. We try to reduce that. So, again, That's good. on the front side, exposures, integration, how can we make it happen uh, when the pulse occurred? We stepped up our EOC to some level. We probably don't need public works. We probably don't need, we probably don't need a couple of ESFs. But if you just sit down and think about it, you do. When you square out a mile square of downtown Orlando, you're going to have an influence of how the trash is going to get picked up, mm -hmm. how people are going to get access. So the police having uh, uh, a say in it. So all the ESFs, there's quite a few ESFs there that are going to be effective. And like you said, maybe not emergency management, emergency coordination of 
having the decision makers in the room that can all integrate and coordinate how it's all going to play out. How is this going to impact the yes. community for today and sustainability? We want to be able to answer these questions because the decision I come up with is going to work out great for me today, but it's going to mess you up for the next month. So having those answers and people in place. And I think we need to give it more value. So where the big challenge I see is in emergency managers of being able to advocate to their community leaders of how valuable that role is. And sometimes they don't even know themselves. Maybe they haven't been in that position. One of the great performances I saw in stepping up, and it's just, there's, there's thousands about there, I'm sure. A lady named Adrian Owen. Uh, she became the emergency manager for Holmes County. Mm. Uh, I was on the rapid needs assessment team for Hurricane Michael. We're visiting the different EOCs. And earlier in the year, she had been in a different role. She took on the role of emergency manager because that person had left. She was still working to go to the classes. And then Hurricane Michael hits. And she was sparse on resources. She's not Orange County, Orlando. The Holmes County. So yeah. she's really in trying to get answers. She did a great job with what she had and the people she had. She had the maps lined up. She had all the streets were open, how things were going. She's coordinated with public works. And she had a family at home she's tending to, some other family members needing help. She, I don't know how she did it, but she did a fantastic job, and she earned the title of uh, accomplished emergency manager by doing it at her level the best way possible, and sometimes that's what emergency managers have to do, but from that, I hope uh, other emergency managers can see where the value is needed for better preparation, and I, mean, I hate to say respect for the position, but without, you know, for a lack of a better way of the position needs to be better understood by everybody that would have to rely on it. Because mm-hmm. once the disaster hits and you're coming to this person and going, why can't we? And why didn't we? That's not the time for anybody to say, well, we should have on the front side. That's when you got to pick up the pieces. And in the after action report, you know, well, we could have been better prepared had we done this and this and this. So sure. hopefully any previous after action reports that point out where failures have occurred can be utilized to help drive better change now for better preparation for later on. And if nothing else, this whole last year of COVID, our EOC has been activated, the state EOC has been activated. So that's been a great primer for what we need to be doing and why that that, that setup is so valuable. For for COVID, we didn't need public works every day, but not every emergency is going to require every ESF function. That's right. It'd be relative to the disaster. You have an active shooter, public works may not be so involved. You have a hurricane, Police is going to be involved, but public works is going to be the big drive after you rescue. So it's going to be relative to the emergency, but they all have to coordinate through one hub, and that hub is emergency management. Perfect. It's emergency management uh, is, uh, I love the idea of the hub. Yeah. We pull in all the stakeholders. A great emergency manager understands the authorities that they have, the understanding of the authorities that they don't have, and the perception of the authorities that people think they have. Which is um, a big part of the job because if people don't think you're relevant, they're not going to use you. If I'm going a million miles an hour and I have to say, what do you do for me? That's already too late, right? Um, And I I think an emergency manager is forced to do that because they're like, what can you do for me? And how can you make my life better? And so like, but a great emergency managers start to understand all the stakeholders, all the EFSFs, all the different community lifelines that get involved and say, okay, this is what's needed, this is what's needed, this is what's needed. And then the, there's an expectation that each of those people or those, those groups do their job efficiently, right? And so I was telling this to the USAR uh, students. I said, 
you know, in so many disasters that I've deployed to, I have directly said, you need to go to neighborhood A. You don't need to go to neighborhood B, right? We have limited resources. We're trying to coordinate teams coming in. I don't do USAR. I do a little bit of USAR now because of that conference. So thanks, Joe. But, uh, and thanks, team. But the, um, the idea was that I knew I could send some people out into a region and they could do their job. And honestly, that confidence went way up after the, um, the training that we just did because it was like, oh, that's why they're so good. But um, in any case, like that's the idea, right? If you have the Red Cross come in and do sheltering, I sh- I'm not going to go there and check on how's your sheltering going every day. I want the numbers back. I want to know how many survivors. We're going to try to get survivors out, the whole deal. But when Salvation Army comes in and they do a feeding mission or a religious group, Southern Baptist Church, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, whoever brings in food, I'm going to expect that food to be safe, healthy, and whatever. Right? And so right. like whatever the group is, public works, um, I expect everybody to do their job. However... Uh, w- the biggest problem I've seen is when groups get left out because nobody even knows about them. And so there needs to be better communication well before disaster. You never hand out your business card in disaster, right? That's the idea. And uh, to the USAR perspective, man, I was kind of frustrated my first day there because I was talking to a lot of the teams the state teams and they're like, yeah, I've, I've been on one guy said, I've been on a team for 16 years and they've never deployed us. I talked to somebody else and like, I've been on this team for eight years and they never deployed us. You said 12, right? And I will tell you during hurricane Harvey, because hurricane Harvey, Maria and Irene were having the same time. It was my understanding that every state and federal asset for USAR was being utilized. And what I was hearing from these different groups was we've never been deployed and uh, there's a lot of politics at the local level that was preventing that. Oh, we're not NIMS qualified. Do you think I care if somebody's NIMS qualified if, you know, we're doing life-saving? No. You know, and so like we need to do better on the emergency management side to understand the resources, but this is kind of a call out to all those local people who are, anybody who's listening right now, if you don't feel like you're part of the process, get part of the, become part of the process, tell people what you can do now. And so when there is an issue, you know, you're already in that discussion. So there, there's a lot of points to that as well, for sure. For sure. And you hit on a couple of things, if you don't mind me touching on. So prior to Katrina, the, it seems that the federal response to major emergencies was several teams and that's about it. And, and it was, it wasn't fully activated. Yeah. Hurricane, the uh, Haitian earthquake, was I think the first time every FEMA team, all 28 were scheduled to go there to respond. Mm. I may be off on the figures, but I believe that was the precipice event to activate every single asset available for humanitarian need and rescue. Since then, we've done more to put resources in play. Hurricane Dorian is probably the biggest wah-wah moment, if you want to call it that, but I think it was a fantastic preparation. That's the quote of the show. Category 5 storm that's devastating Bahamas, and it's going to level Florida. And I live there, so I really take interest in wanting to keep it up and running. Yeah. But here come millions of dollars of assets, multiple teams coming to the state of Florida that weren't needed. I count it as a win because Mm. it was a fantastic disaster response exercise to see what else is all needed 
without the cost of recovery needed. Mm. Okay, you can't, you're not getting the money back for maybe some of the things, but you definitely got a lot of good answers so that we're fully ready for the next one. And I think it was a fantastic preparation, if nothing else. Mm. So I applaud our response efforts in getting staged resources ahead of time. Uh, one of the other points you made was um, that the emergency manager shouldn't have to hand out business cards during a disaster for sure. So if you're in that element where you're not being sought after by your community leaders, go make the approach. And then where I've seen a couple circumstances, it's maybe that top level manager really isn't interested in meeting with you. Find out the person in that office that is. Absolutely. And then, and, you know, talk to them and say, hey, just so you're aware, in case we ever have to operate together, here's my card. Uh, these are a couple of things I can do together. I'd like to chat with you or meet you for lunch or someday. And then talk to that person and see if at that level you can determine where you're going to have to serve that group plan for it mm -hmm. so that when the disaster happens, you're ready with the answers. Because when that high level official or that top person that who really wasn't interested in you comes in and suddenly needs you and you're ready, here you go. This is what I, I forecasted. This may be a problem for you. Here you go. Boom. There's your door just wide open. So yeah. that should solve a lot of your issues. Um, it, but it takes work and uh, it takes a lot of planning and, and they don't have to be every single plan, but some of the plans go with the probable. And that's planning on the front side. And that's a lot of what emergency management is, is being ready for the disasters and what's your most likely circumstances, right? The, um, yeah. The, the, the worst thing an emergency manager can do is to go to approach a, a, a high-level person, political appointee especially, and come off as a doomsday prepper. If you walk into a room who, uh, of somebody who doesn't want to deal with you because they have budget constraints and they're trying to do this and they're worried about their career and blah, 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 and they don't really see it as an issue, and you walk in and say, okay, we want to prepare for the nuke, that's not going to be very effective. But if you go in there and say, hey, we have every year we have floods, and it makes you look bad. Like the, the make you look bad argument is probably the most effective argument I've actually had when dealing with high-level people because they are career focused. I mean, we are in careers. It's okay to be career focused to a degree, but it's like, hey, you want to stay in office? You want to not have a, a crap storm hit you? Then, you know, spend one tenth of what you would normally have to spend and let's mitigate this flood by, you know, uh, let's, let's deal with the levy system that's been outdated for 20 years and the and that's been on the news a couple of times about being outdated. You don't want that to become an issue. That happened in um, in Michigan, 2019 or 2020. Two dams gave, and big deal impacted 10,000 people. Oh, surprise! In 2000 or 1999, the Army Corps of Engineers said these dams are vulnerable. You have to fix them now. It will cost about 10 million dollars to fix. The private company chose not to fix the dam and it became a hundred million dollar problem to fix plus all the lawsuits so you know that happened with uh texas power grid right. hey your power your hey you don't have you don't really store any of your fuel maybe you want to start store, storing some of your fuel you know oh just kidding when we had a a cold happen cold right everyone starts using their 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 gas and their power and so like their power goes out for several days and, and you know everybody's out of their job all, everybody but one resigned from that job. Um, and so like, that's, that's the kind of things that can happen. I don't know, but there's other motivators too. I like how you said like most reasonable, go for the most reasonable, get their trust show that you can do your job competently. And 
Sometimes it's not about the job. Sometimes it's just approaching people like humans. Hey, you have kids, I have kids, right? And I think there's lots of different ways to garner relationships. A great emergency manager, anybody who's who's in the field of communication should be a great communicator anyways, right? And so if you're not very good at that skill, that's a skill to work, definitely work on. Absolutely. If you're not going to communicate your message, somebody else will, and it won't be the one you want. I love that. Man, you have all these quotes. Uh, so we try to do <laughs> quotes from this show. Um, Ashley's going to have to put that together for us for social media. But um, okay, let's, let's, uh, we're getting out to about an hour here. That's where we like yep. to keep it. Um, let me ask you a couple, a couple questions. I actually asked you this question before, and I really liked your answer. Um, it was pretty pretty simple answer, but it's a good answer. There's a lot of media right now. In fact, let me back up. When when FEMA became on came under Department of Homeland Security, we added a fifth element to you know um, what was that uh, prepared preparing mitigation response recovery were the four, and now we add protection. And so a lot of emergency managers. In fact, I know some cities that have started uh, giving a weapon to their emergency manager. And so from your side of the house, there's been a lot of media that says, hey, should firefighters arm themselves? Yes or no? And so I asked you that question before. I want to ask you that question on here. What are your thoughts about firefighters carrying a weapon? As far as day-to-day, I don't know if that's necessarily the best option. And, it, and it's relative to your region. I mean, we, we typically stand by and, re, and stage when there's a hostile event down the street. Now, as an entry team going in as a rescue task force, uh, my personal opinion, I, if I'm, an, I'm a gun guy, so I'm comfortable with guns. My father was a police officer. So uh, if I'm qualified on the weapon, I train with the weapon often, I'm going to be proficient. Remember? Proficiency, accuracy, proficiency. So... With that, if I am comfortable with the weapon, then I should be able to, I would want to protect myself. And in theory, I would have four officers around me providing that protection. The threat has been reduced or minimized because they're secured, sequestered, killed, captured uh, by that. But I believe if I were on the rescue task force, you know, if I were comfortable to have the weapon, my agency would allow, I would like to carry a weapon so I would have that option to protect myself as well. So that if one of my other protectors was injured or incapacitated, I could still provide that layer that I need to continue for protecting everybody else at my level on my team. Mm. If I'm not a gun capable person, then I wouldn't force that issue. You don't want to give somebody a weapon that's going to be a more danger for themselves and others than create the problem. So it's a little bit more of an elaborate answer than the other day. No, I like it though. I mean, that's kind of what it broke down to before too, right? Is, um, if you have the training and expertise and you're, you feel comfortable with it, then there's a possibility for a door opening. But if you're not like that's a, that was the same argument with teachers carrying a weapon. Uh, people are like, Oh my gosh, you know, I think the state of Georgia, everybody, all teachers should carry a weapon. Well, I don't think, I don't think everybody should carry a weapon. I don't think if you're comfortable with it, I don't think that's, you're not, you're not there to every day protect against the active shooter. You're there to teach. And that that's the 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 cliche like your weapon is the is you know the pencil right, um, but there was a story uh, a week ago in Logan, Utah, um, a man, a 41 year old man, was trying to break through the window 
to grab kids inside. And as he was breaking through the window, a, te- a teacher, uh, you know, showed their weapon and held them there at gunpoint, and the officers came and arrested the individual. Pretty scary situation for the kids. But a teacher was able to control the situation. Nobody died. Nobody got hurt. And they controlled the situation. And the police officers praised the teacher for doing that because in their state, they're allowed to do that. They're allowed to care if they want to. And that was, to me, a perfect example of training and expertise, not escalating the situation. Um, but I go back and forth on it, uh, quite frankly. Like, um, I am, as an emergency manager, I'm not law enforcement. I'm always behind the scenes. But I recognize that if I was wearing my FEMA shirt, or if I was uh, wearing my county's, you know, emergency manager uh, shirt, then, you know, some idiot might want to put a target on my back, you know, and um, to be aware of that as well. And so, like, it's a complex issue. It's it's always going to be gray for a lot of reasons. But I like what you're saying. I, I like your, uh, at least the door could be open to the conversation if the the training and capabilities there. Um, okay, so. That being said, that was kind of a that was the biggest tangent of the show. Um, let's talk about the the final point here. The, the question I like to ask everybody: um, Now that we've talked about the emergency services side and the emergency management side, which again should be a much closer relationship. In fact, Orlando sounds like they're doing a great job out of it. April, I don't know who you are, but great job. Thanks for making us look good. Um, yeah, yeah. The other sorry, what was the other name? Manny Soto. Manny. Manny and April, uh, check, check. Good job. Make things make this look good. So the last question I'd like to ask, now that you've been integrated with them very well, the next phase of emergency management, what do you think one thing that we should change to get to that next level of emergency management? Well, unfortunately, money is always the big drive on everything. It's always the big challenge. And we have, and it's not about money. It's about budgeting, which is about priorities, which is about what we need to address first. And, uh, Another quote for the show. <laughs> if that wasn't always the big challenge, if we could make things happen, and I, this requires integration or a lot of cooperation, airports, hospitals, large businesses, cities, all typically require events and training drills. Collaborating those efforts to integrate those operations so that you truly get a large operation, I think would give the biggest effect. You would have to develop to that, so that have to be training modules up until you built to that. It would require work and uh, forecasting and people staying consistent with the operation. Those are other challenges to face. But some of the best exercises I've been in and, and the medical component, the MSOC uh, conference you went to a couple of weeks ago was a component of that was part of it was a SIDRA, the uh, Community Involved Disaster Response Exercise. And uh, did a couple of those. There was one in Connecticut that I missed out on. I got to be a part of one in Wichita many years ago. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Multi-day exercise, multi-agency, multi-involvement. And it was a, uh impromptu terrorist scenario where the truck bomb detonated before its target and created the fire and collapse aspects, but also a SWAT element. So police investigation and then inter- integrating with uh JTTF and FBI and bringing in those elements who also need to do exercises, coordinating that whole element, they were given a piece. Then the fire service, they had to do their piece, water supply, water loss because of the explosion devastated the water main in the area. So they had to do that piece. 
which damaged several buildings in the area, reminiscent mm. of the Oklahoma City bombing. Then you had multiple buildings that had to be searched and structurally supported and prepared. So then you have your vendor application of cranes coming in and heavy equipment, patient management, hospitals, transport, infrastructure, sustainment, large, large exercise, mm. a lot of pieces, but it's like eating an elephant one bite at a time. It can be done. It just has to be supported and having enough right people, I think in certain regions would be able to make that happen. It would just take a collective of time of a work group. Don't call it a committee because it doesn't get done. Call it a work group. So the work gets done and see if you can put something that together. And that's something that could be done every three to five years on a large scale. It takes a long time of planning, but I think that truly tests an agency, a region on their troop capabilities and gives honest answers. And unfortunately, some people don't want honest answers, and it's typically an inhibitor. But if we're truly serving our community in whatever aspect and role that you serve, you should want to be able to be willing to take in those answers so that you can perform better. Because all our purpose, my purpose as a firefighter, as a district chief, as a task force leader, is to serve my community. And part of my community is my family. Mm. I purposely live in the city of Orlando, so I serve my family. And I want my firefighters and everybody I work with to do their best because they're serving my family when I can't. That's awesome. So if we took that approach, I think we would probably put a little bit more exercise, a little more energy into some of those things that we do. And uh, hopefully that's maybe a little motivation for somebody that's listening to your podcast to, to go forth and do even better. Because I love what you're doing with Disaster Tough. I mean, I'm a big fan at this point. When, once we met, I started listening. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I love the messages and, and I'm humbled to be a part of it. Uh, no, you, no humble needed. I mean, you, you, your chops are, your chops are there. Just like you're, you're talking about all these, oh, I'm not smart enough to be an instructor BS. You know, you don't need, there's no, you know, there's humility needed there. You're obviously cutting the, the top, top tier. Right. So, um, I came home and I told my staff at Doberman, I said, guess what we're going to start doing? We're going to start doing full scale exercises that do cross training. Uh, I learned a lot. I, I've been around the block and, you know, I'm kind of an arrogant guy, but I've been to 30 states. I, I've been to, you know, disasters of every kind, every size. And I have two degrees in the topic and I, I get to interview experts like your, yourself every week. And I learned a lot being out there that applies to what I do. Um, and I was like, man, these they, they really need to understand what we do so that, you know, like the the whole idea of communication and incident command and learning that authoritative piece and and to the, to the different things that applies to 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 even the tactical level, and so I was like, there we we need to develop skill based training and exercises that allow observation and a little bit of training in cross sector cross sector training, and by so doing, you're creating more well rounded, more uh, capable people by gaining the skills that apply to them in their specific sphere of influence, you're just expanding that, that understanding. And so when you get out to a large scale disaster, we didn't even talk about pulse nightclub. So there's definitely going to be a pulse, uh, a part two. In fact, we're having Brian Davis come on here, chief Davis. Uh, thanks to, uh, chief Lewis. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about, um, some of the incident command perspective from that. Uh, but like just understanding when you get into a large scale disaster, because, 90% of what fire police does doesn't require a large scale disaster. However, like if you go to a car accident, especially if there's a fatal car accident 
or there's a chase, there's going to be fire, there's going to be police, there's going to be the tow, there's going to be, you know, whoever. Uh, DOT is going to be possibly involved with rerouting people. And so, like, you're, there are a lot of elements in emergency management, emergency coordination uh, that have to go, they go into play. And just understanding how they work and, oh, hey, I'm, I'm 45 feet away from the police officer. I literally cannot talk to him. Maybe we, maybe an emergency manager can address that issue, stuff like that. So great call out about a uh, full scale exercises, a lot more training, a lot more, um, cross training and full scale exercises. I love all those points. Um, I just want to thank you again so much, chief Lewis for coming on the show. You obviously know your stuff. There's going to be a part two. If you're, if you allow us, there's going to be a part three and part four, obviously, because, uh, you know, it's, it's been really fun to talk to, talk to you and, um, I'm sure our, our listeners are going to, to have the same thoughts. So thanks again for coming on the show. Absolutely. And I'm right around 40,000 words. So I still got a few <laughs> left for another one. So That's fantastic. If it works out, That's awesome. If it works out, that'd be great. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Okay. So everyone, this is what happens every week. We love it and we hate it at the same time. We love it when you send us an email and let us know what your thoughts are. But we would really like it if you put it on our social media, the Disaster Tough Podcast on Instagram, Doberman Emergency Management on LinkedIn, um, either or for Facebook, that kind of stuff. We, we love the reaching out. And so we appreciate for all those who do it. Don't be afraid to ask your question publicly. A lot of other people have similar questions. And that's probably the fastest way that Chief Lewis will be able to see those questions if you send it to us uh, publicly and a lot of other people to answer as well. However, if you do want to work with Doberman Emergency Management, if you want to do full-scale exercises, you, you've been thinking about how this plays, you want to become a better emergency manager or whatever, send us an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. We'll work with it there. If you like this episode, which you should have because it was packed with quotes, it was packed with great information from Chief Lewis. If you like that, you got to give us, again, we always ask, five-star rating and subscribe. Let us know that you liked it. And uh, we'll see you back next week. Thanks.